Okay, I think we're ready to begin here. Uh, Revelation chapter 22. Uh, the title of this message this morning is Behold, I Come Quickly. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to read it, read the chapter once again so that the actual information that we're studying here will be fresh in our minds. So let's read beginning at verse 1. And he showed unto me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I heard, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. He saith, then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. 
For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I was thinking about this passage uh, this past week. From time to time, I just find myself... Um, remembering what I'm going to be teaching and thinking about it. And something occurred to me that I had not really thought about before, and that is that the last two chapters of the Bible are dedicated to the new heaven and the new earth. And the first two chapters in the book of Genesis talk about the first heaven and the first earth just two chapters and so the bible begins with two chapters telling us how things were during the six days of creation then we come to the end of the book and why should we be surprised because there's one author of this book there's only one author and that is god and he has woven together in a seamless manner the thoughts of his mind as he reveals to the world of those that he created in his image uh, his eternal purpose, the will of God. What's in the mind of God and, and has been from eternity past it was to create a physical world that would be a mirror of everything that he is in the invisible world. And that's exactly what we have. So much so that the invisible things of him are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. In many respects... The Bible is the Word of God, the mind of God, and in many respects, creation is a mirror of that eternal mind. So much so that when you study the works of God, uh, you have a basis for believing even to the depth of seeing the Godhead, which is invisible. And so this is a tremendously important thing for us to think about, is creation itself. The Lord Jesus himself even said, if you believe not me, then believe me for the work's sake. And so what was his work? Well, he created the world's. Uh, 
Leon back there is a photographer. And uh, when he creates a, a picture, um, it requires a photographer. It requires somebody to actually take the picture. And it's impossible to look at a photograph and not understand that you couldn't have that photo photograph if you didn't have a photographer. And the same thing is true when it comes to a painting. An artist is presupposed by the very existence of the painting. Or a sculpture. You have to have a sculptor before you can have a sculpture. And you have to have a creator before you can have that which was created. And so creation itself is, is sort of like another version of the King James Bible. And by the way, the Lord puts great emphasis upon not messing with what he's done. You do not add to it, and you do not take away from it. Now, the other night, my wife and I were watching a documentary, and one of the men that was in the interview, there were three men, I can't remember the third one, but one of them was Michael Behe, who wrote the book, Darwin's Black Box. And in his book, which I read many years ago, it's a, really a blessing to have read that book, uh, but he presented uh, what you might call the doctrine or uh, a scientific law that he referred to as irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. God has created everything in such a way, it's so perfect, you cannot add to it and you cannot subtract from it. If you do, then whatever is made becomes uh, corrupted. Um, it becomes diseased. Uh, problems enter in. You cannot change it. Um, we, um, we have a, a heart. We have eyes, 20-20 vision. We have a um, blood pressure that's fixed, that's what we call normal. If it's too high or too low, you got a problem. If you start having problems with your eyes and you, you get something other than 20-20, then you've got a, a problem. And the chemistry of the body, it, it has to be exactly what it's designed to be, or the chemical imbalance will result in stomach problems, respiratory problems. You have all kinds of problems. So creation is irreducibly complex, and so is this book. You do not add to it. You do not take away from it. And so creation is, in a manner of speaking, 
another version of this version. It's a mirror of this version. So much so that you will never find in the world of existing things something that conflicts with what is written. This is a scientific book because it is written, it is inspired and preserved by the scientists that created the worlds. And so there's a complete and perfect harmony there. There's a third version, and I've taught this before, but I think it's worth mentioning uh, to sort of uh, remind ourselves afresh of, of how marvelous this revelation is. But it's what we read in Romans chapter 2 about God uh, essentially writing the law in a man's conscience. So that whether you have ever read the Bible or not, or whether you have failed to see what is right and what is wrong in the world of created things, um, God has put a conscience in man concerning what he says is right and wrong. Not what we think. But what he says. And that conscience is something you cannot add to and you cannot take away from it because right is right and wrong is wrong. And the difference is as stark as light and darkness. There's no question about it when it comes to what God has put on the conscience of a human being. And so there are three methods that God uses to bring us to himself. And it's the word, it's creation, and it's the conscience. And so, um, anyway, uh, these are things that we need to think about because we're being reminded of it in this very final message from the Lord, we're not to add to or take away from his word. And we find that that principle applies uh, not only to the word of God, but to his creation, which is irreducibly complex. Irreducibly complex. And you do not try to reinterpret right or wrong either, as our society is trying to do right now in terms of the LGBTQ philosophy or worldview. These are people that are trying to change the moral conscience of a human being. And that is a great sin before God. And he says, if you do that, I'll take your name out of the Lamb's Book of Life, and he will. Another thing I would remind ourselves of is that this book, first of all, is a horrible message. I do not think I can say that too often. The message of this book is a horrible message. 
as well as a glorious gospel message. But it's a horrible message. Because the whole book is negative. I mean, the whole Bible, for the most part, is a treatment of a huge problem that is so huge, so negative, that only God himself can provide a remedy. It takes deity to deal with the problem that began in the Garden of Eden. And, of course, the problem has to do with the free will of man. And that's a central issue of Scripture. And um, it had to do with Adam and Eve falling for the lie that they could be as wise as God, knowing good and evil, independent from God. And that they could provide their own future as though they could handle the future. And the truth was, they didn't know what a day would bring forth because they were not sovereign. They did not have control of the universe. And the only way that you could uh, have eternal security concerning the future would be to have sovereign control over uh, the universe of created things. Because if you don't, if you don't, then something can happen that would interrupt your will being done. You have to control the circumstances around you for your will to be done. Satan didn't reveal that to him. But as you study the Bible, these things become uh, abundantly evident. God and God alone knows the future and can tell you what it's going to be because he sovereignly controls every atom in this endless, eternal creation of his. He controls all of it. He knows the hair upon our head. He knows every blade of grass. There's not one thing that can be done. There's not a thought that a person can have but what he knows it in advance. He's all-knowing. For a person to have a secure future, they have to have these attributes. And, of course, the revelation of Scripture is he's the only one who has them. But Adam and Eve fell for the lie. And they did so with a free will. Now, it's interesting when you start thinking these kinds of thoughts to realize that God created... Uh, uh, not only the personalities in his image, which is man, but he created the angels. And he created them with a free will as well. And so it's important for us to think about that term for just a few moments. What is a free will? What is a free will? Well, I can tell you, I think, what it is with the scriptures as the evidence for these thoughts. The free will is really the essence of what it means to be a person. To be a person. 
We're created in the image of God, and if we're created in the image of God with a free will, then it presupposes that he has a free will. Now, I, I did speak about these things before, so I don't want to belabor it, but um, the three persons of the Trinity are not in bondage uh, because all three represent to us in Scripture the truth. And so this is essentially what the Lord Jesus taught in John's Gospel. He said, if you continue in my word, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. The Father obviously is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the truth. And so these three are one. Because they're the one truth. And that's why whether you're focusing on Jesus Christ or the Father or the Holy Spirit, you're focusing on identical attributes. Identical. And so... God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit has a free will. But they're in perfect agreement concerning the truth. And so they're completely free by his own definition. If you continue in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, he created man in his image because... And if he's going to do that, then man has to have a free will, like God, to be in his image. And so what is a free will? Well, it's exactly what it says. Free to decide, free to make a choice. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are free to make a choice. And they always have had the same conclusion with the freedom that is theirs. Well, we're not given a great deal of insight into it, but God created the angels with a free will too. And they had an opportunity to choose, make a choice, to be one with the Trinity or to walk away from it, and it Turns out that Lucifer used his free will to call God a liar. And that's exactly what he did. He essentially said, God did not tell you the truth. Ye shall not surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a matter of fact, the very opposite will happen. You'll be as wise as God. And so a third of the angels, according to Scripture, uh, chose to side with uh, Lucifer against God. And they hated him. They hated God. They hated the idea that he was the only truth. 
But folks, you do not have to be some kind of deep philosopher to understand that you can't have unity in a universe apart from singular truth. There's only one right answer. When something is perfect, you can't change it. You can't add to it. You cannot take away from it. God is perfect. His thoughts are perfect. His works are perfect. And so when Satan comes along and says, no, it's not. I've got another idea about truth. I've got another idea about right and wrong. I've got a different... uh, Blood pressure idea. I got a different 2020 idea about physical reality. Well, that's a logical impossibility. I mean, if we're going to agree that God is perfect, and he is, that's how he's revealed himself to be, then you cannot add to perfection And you cannot take away from perfection. Man thinks you can. Right alongside the devil. And so we've got our own thoughts about what is right and what is wrong. We've got our own thoughts about what we can do that will result in an expected end. Not true. Because we don't know the future. And we do not have the capacity to control the physical universe. We can't even control the thoughts of our own mind. Try it sometime. Try going through a day never having a bad thought see how far you can go. Try going through a day and making a right decision every time. See how far you can go. God can do that, but man can't. So the Bible is designed to teach us this horrible message from heaven. And that is, without God, we can do nothing. We can know nothing, and we can do nothing that's good. That's the horrible message from heaven. The horrible message from heaven is that we are incorrigible sinners, And that it's impossible for us to correct our problem. We cannot. Because it's our nature to love the world and the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and pride of life. It's impossible to change that nature. And so, in the first two chapters of the Bible... God's design was to create a perfect world, and he did. And he created Adam and Eve with a free will, 
And he is not the author of the imperfection that that free will was used for. When Adam and Eve chose to do what they did, it was on them. It was not on God. He did not determine their sinful choice. They did. You learn that by studying Ezekiel 28. Where in the 28th chapter, God makes it clear to the world that Lucifer fell because iniquity was found in him. In him. Not in God. In him. And so, when God created... Um, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. And I've had this idea for some time. I don't push it. I just give it out for purposes of thinking. And you can either believe it or not believe it. It's not going to be the difference between heaven and hell one way or another. But God has given us these minds to enjoy thinking his thoughts after him. And I try to do that. I don't want to teach something that's wrong. But nowhere in that six days of creation in the beginning does it talk about hell. And so the question is, when did God create the light of lake of fire? I'm inclined to believe that he created it in six days of creation, but he did not intend for it to be a place that Lucifer would end up being or those created in his image. But he had already created it. And I believe that there's reason to believe, and I'm going to say it that way, that the sun itself, is a lake of fire. I think there are a lot of things in Scripture, just logically speaking, that point to that. Because the Scripture says our God is a consuming fire. The fire all throughout the Bible is a symbol of the wrath of God. And so people say, well... I just can't believe that the lake of fire would be the sun because the sun is eternal. God created it to be eternal. And I can't believe that the lake of fire would be out there in the heavens in the new heaven and new earth. But let me remind you of something. Here we are sitting in this church And I'm not sure because it's been so long since I've thought about some of these things, but isn't the earth something like 8,000 miles diameter? Isn't that right? Somebody knows science better than me, I think. Right! Uh, Kurt, back there in the control room, said, that's it, 8,000 miles. 
Well, did you know that the light, that did you know that hell is about 4,000 miles underneath where you're sitting right now? You didn't think about it until I said it. We didn't come to church today. We don't walk around out here on this planet thinking about the fact that 4,000 miles down below us is where the rich man is that is talked about in Luke chapter 16. But that's where he is. I can tell you that by the authority of Scripture. That's where he is. He's not in the... He's not in the final lake of fire. He's in hell in the heart of the earth, and we never think about it. Tell me why that's any different than the idea that the sun is the lake of fire. Some people think that the lake of fire has to be some remote region of the cosmos. I don't believe that. And I'll tell you why I do not believe that. Because Jesus Christ is omnipresent. His presence covers the entire world, uh, worlds of created things that he created. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And so creating a lake of fire that's in some remote region somewhere is is uh, inconsistent with what we learn about the Lord. And let me tell you again another reason why I believe this is a true statement. Um, I believe that hell is as much born out of love as heaven. I believe hell is as holy as heaven is holy. You'd have a hard time saying that's not true with scripture to back that up. And I believe that God is not only the savior of the world, he is the judge of all the earth. He's the judge. And uh I think that it's one of the most interesting ironies that I've ever really even thought about in my lifetime. And that is that the sun that we see coming up out of the east every morning is a symbol to us of life. It's a symbol of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. There's nothing whatsoever offensive about the sun. We love to see it, a sunny day. We've had a few days like that. It's been wonderful. There's nothing offensive about the sun. But the Bible says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that sword will cut unto salvation or if you don't like it, it will cut unto death. Cuts two ways. That same sun that is out there 
is salvation to one and eternal damnation to another. But there is but one God. There is but one truth. There is but one justice and righteousness and holiness. And everything that God has ever done issues out from his nature of love. And um, my inclination is to think that the world of people who have rejected the message of this book are seeing with their eyes their eternal destination when they see the sun rising in the east. The sun rising in the east is a picture of resurrection to the believer. But the sun rising in the east is a a symbol of damnation to those that reject the light of the world. That is Jesus Christ. Now, I can't prove these things, but I think that it's, it's important to learn to use what one might call biblical logic. Biblical logic. Biblical logic is tremendously important. Because it is something that God has equipped us with. It's called an imagination so that we can use it as we study the Bible to sort of bridge ourselves from one thought to another thought so that there's more connectivity in what God is saying to us. It's like a spiritual bridge from one point to another. But it's a logical bridge a logical bridge so that you can go from one point to another point. And so I think that it would be a, an interesting thing if what I am saying turns out to be the exact case because I'm telling you that God so loved the world. He put a constant symbol up there in the heavens for us to look at every day to see two different ways it gives life and without light you don't have life it's like water without water you don't have life without light you don't have life either but that light is death if you're careless concerning it. Um, you don't ever hear about somebody planning on taking a spaceship to the sun. Our conscience and what we know about God's created world teaches us that that would be insane. No man can go to God apart from God's enablement. Lucifer thought within himself he could. I'll ascend above the clouds. I'll be like the Most High. 
I can ascend up to the sun. I can be the light of the world. I can be the light of the world. Not so. That is not so. But what's interesting is God, if we believe him and receive him, he brings us into his family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's enlarging his family. This is the whole purpose of creation was to enlarge his family. Why? Because he loves. God loves. God is love. And he loves to give. He loves to give. And here's what's interesting in Scripture. The believer does not have to, by works, be like God. To the believer who realizes he never can be, which is a horrible message from heaven. God says, in realizing the truth about who I am, in realizing the truth about the dangers of the human will, and in view of the fact that you have chosen to die to everything that you are and what you think, and receive in the place of it the mind of Christ. I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you to myself. And I'm going to conform you, listen to this, into the image of my son. He's, he's, he conforms us into his image. By making us holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. And where he is, we can be also and not die. We can behold his face as we see it in Revelation 22 and not die. We are in the Son, Jesus Christ. By the way, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Son of Righteousness. S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. Look it up. I do not think that these thoughts are evil. I do not think that they uh, should cause people confusion. I think these thoughts gives us a little better insight into the overall message of the Bible. And so when God created in the first two chapters the heavens and the earth, we go to the book of the Revelation, and interestingly enough, the last two chapters of the book of the Revelation is about the new heaven and the new earth. Just two chapters from the beginning and to the end. And in this final chapter, Revelation 22, 
we see that God has provided a total and perfect remedy for what he originally wanted. And that was a universe where there would never be death again. There would never be sorrow. There would never be tears. There would never be pain. There would never be memory loss. And I, I believe that as we continue to study the scriptures, when we think carefully about all of the things that are going to be done away with, that we've experienced since the fall. I'm telling you that God is so amazing that what he's really giving us insight into is what he was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I have not seen nor ear heard Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that, that love him. And I think the insight that he's giving us is a world that is absolutely perfect for all eternity to come. Where all of these things that comprise the horrible message from heaven about what happened when Lucifer sinned and when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God wipes it away. And he does it, and I hope to develop this at some point where time gets by so fast in here. I hope to develop these thoughts at some point in such a way that... Um, we can understand just how marvelous God is and that we will have no memory of the first birth. None. No memory of the first birth. The only birth that God will ever think about in eternity to come, in these final two chapters, is our birth from the dead. When he makes a new vessel. And he's able to do it justly by his own system of justice because we took that free will, that, free will that he gave us. And we used it before we died to choose to be made in his image. It is a satanic lie that God, God's plan is to turn us into robots. That is, a, that is a filthy lie that the ultimate program of God is to turn us into robots where we do not really have a choice but to be, one, to be one with him and to agree with him. That's, that's a satanic 
lie. That's not the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The most wonderful freedom in the world to think about is to see God as he is and that he does not change. He said so in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. And to read this book and realize that he will never change from being the loving God that he is, the merciful God, the gracious God, the God of blessing, the one from whom all blessings flow. All of these attributes of God can never change. His eternal innocence, he's innocent. Always has been, never done anything wrong. And to think that we had, by this mysterious way that no one can really comprehend, I can't even begin to understand how I got saved. I don't know how I got saved. I don't know what happened. It's a great mystery that a person that loves the world by nature could one day be walking along and all of a sudden that free will get changed in such a way that I, I focus on Jesus Christ and I don't want to focus on anything else for all eternity to come. I do not know how to explain that, but I know this, I did. And God converted me and brought me back to himself. He sure did. And I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. He ought to be and certainly deserves to be first in our life. First. Above every other love or interest or concern, that ought to be him. Because he is worthy. And as Paris Reed had said, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive the reward of his sufferings. This is how we need to think about this book as we come to the end of it. So what I'm trying to do is put together in a fashion that the message the whole Bible because this is where we are. We're at the end of the book. I mean, when you read a book, somebody comes up to you and says, have you read that book? Yeah, I read it. What, what is it about? Well, it would be pitiful if we couldn't give an answer. And so... We've come to the end of the book. We've been studying it for years, many of us. What have we learned? What do we know about God? Well, how do, how do you understand these last two chapters? I'll tell you how I understand it. God is so wonderful. Nothing can get in the way of his will being done. That's how I understand these last two chapters. God originally wanted 
a world without death, a world without sin, a world of perfect fellowship where there would be union and communion in love. And he's going to have it. And he's that good, he's that great a God. And I believe that these thoughts help us really plunge into the meaning of what Paul wrote the Hebrews. I think it's the second chapter of Hebrews. So great salvation. So great salvation. He has delivered us from so great a death. Second Corinthians chapter 1. So great a death. To so great salvation. And so as we study and continue our studies in the 22nd chapter, I hope maybe next week we'll go down a pretty long list of things that God is going to do away with that will not be a part of his final program. It will not be a part. And so I think our time is, is gone. We'll just stop right here. I didn't really get into a lot of what I was going to say. Uh, the title of the message, I Come Quickly. Uh, we'll get into that next week. Uh, let's see. Oh, my word. Jim Pilkalkos, will you dismiss this, brother?